0: You know that on uh, Sunday mornings we've been going through the book of 1st Timothy. Last week we went through verse 7 of 1st Timothy chapter 2. We saw in looking at those verses that Paul wanted the church to be a praying church. But not just praying for those in the church itself, but he said to pray for all people, for all kings and those in authority, for rich and for poor, black and white Slave and king, Jew and Gentile, Green Countyite and Californian, fill in the blank. We should be praying for all people. Because God desires to save all people, He said. Meaning all kinds of people. All those whom He listed. Not just the Jews, but even cruel Gentile kings were to be prayed for. For their salvation. This pleases God. We also saw last week that Paul was not trying to undo his prior teachings on election, on predestination, by saying that God desires all people to be saved, but rather he was showing that the gospel was for everyone, for all sinners. So today we're going to use that, as I said, as a springboard to stop for a week and just pause. And look more closely at the biblical doctrine of election. I know many of you are gasping inside, oh no, election. I hope to show that rather than being something difficult or embarrassing in Scripture, that election is actually incredibly beautiful. It reflects God's unmerited love for His people, His amazing grace to save. So the text is actually in Ephesians, if you would turn to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians 1, and I'll begin reading at verse 3. This is God's holy and inspired word. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word, Ephesians 1 verse 3. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Amen. Please be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we pray that you would open our eyes. Indeed, all spiritual truth is spiritually discerned, and we are a needy people. We need your help. Bless the speaker and the hearer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Some of you know that my background was one that avoided 1 Timothy. Chapter 2, at all costs, indeed, I avoided Ephesians chapter 1 and Romans chapter 9 as well. Especially Ephesians, especially the places where we see election, predestination. I did not like those things. I did not like to study those things. I knew scripture. My parents had taught us scripture since I was very young. But I was what you would call an Arminian. I believed that my salvation was in my hands. And that's really the the predominant view in our country. That everyone has salvation in their own hands. And it was an insult to me that God would pursue his own glory before consulting me, especially about salvation. So I was embarrassed by Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2 and Romans chapter 8 and 9 and 10, and really every place you see election in the Bible. I followed Arminian theologians very closely who could help me explain these texts away, although I wouldn't have said that at the time. They were inconvenient passages, and I was actually very frustrated by them. Some of you know also that I began writing a book. I was going to kind of put Calvinism to rest once and for all. I was single-handedly going to put him down. Put him where he should be. My method was to go through the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And wherever I saw God's sovereignty, I would write that Scripture down. Wherever I saw man's sovereignty, I would write that Scripture down. I don't think I made it out of Genesis. God crushed me. He crushed my soul. He broke my heart in half with the weight of His Word. And at that moment, really, I became committed to teaching and preaching the whole counsel of God. Regardless of any level of mistreatment or scorn I might receive from friends or family, it just didn't matter. I wanted truth, and I wanted to teach and preach truth. God is much bigger than I ever thought. He's much more loving than I ever imagined. He's much more worthy and holy than I could have ever thought so I went after Calvinists with all my heart, and instead God went after me, and my self-righteousness and my biblical snobbery and my pride, and he changed me through his word, so that I would know that it was his Holy Spirit that did the work. So when I think of election, I I see something just absolutely beautiful, wonderful, and amazing gorgeous truth of scripture and i hope to show that to you as well the beauty of election and reflecting god's love reflecting his covenant and uniting us to christ those three things we will look at actually in a few weeks we'll probably also deal with some of the common misunderstandings of this doctrine so i want to equip you that's my job is to equip the saints and you should hold this truth, this doctrine, in high esteem because it reflects the heart of our God. So we're going to approach this doctrine with great care as we do all of God's Word, but we're also trembling as we do so because whenever we come to the high and holy doctrine of God's redemption, this is not something to be debated. It's not something primarily to be going back and forth and wondering. God is God. He has one truth, he has one word, he has one Savior, and one message. They're not multiple versions of truth. He has one people, and they are the elect of God. Election and predestination are clearly seen throughout all of the scriptures, not just in Genesis, or not just in Romans 9, but in Genesis even, all through the Old Testament. We see, in our reading this morning, we saw. God chose Israel. Indeed, God chose Abraham out of an idolatrous family. God chose Jacob and not Esau. God chooses whomever He will. And everyone has to acknowledge that election is in the Bible. What do we mean when we say election? We mean that God, before all time, chose some of humanity to bring to Himself. He chose to save some of us. Indeed, a great multitude Myriads upon myriads, 10,000 times 10,000. He chose to save, to snatch from the fire. Before he knew anything about them, it's not like he foresaw in the future that they would make good choices for him. And then he chose those people. No, it's before the creation of the world. He chose people for himself. Not based on their works, but based on his own grace. That's election. We saw this in Deuteronomy 7 that we read this morning. The Lord chose you to be a people for his treasured possession. He said to the people of Israel, the sons of Abraham, all of us who have a father named Abraham. And when he says why he chose them, he says it's not because you're a great people in number. In other words, it's not because you are a mighty people that you somehow deserve this, but why? Verse 8, but it's because the Lord loves you in keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Why does he love them? It's kind of circular reasoning, but it's God saying it, so it's perfectly sound. He says, I chose you, I chose to love you, to set my love upon you for one reason, because I love you. If you are one who was like me, who rejects this wonderful teaching in Scripture, but you are willing to study God's Word, then I encourage you to do that. And an easy way to do it is to look at the, the word elect, election, chosen, predestined. Just look at it in your, in your Bibles. Get a concordance and read it. Read it for yourself. Really, the problem isn't that people don't understand election. That's not the problem. It's not difficult. The problem is people don't like it. Why is that? Because actually, we want to be God. We want to decide everything for ourselves. The idea that we are not God offends us. It offends our pride. And my experience too, and this was my own experience, was that I had no problem with... God electing Abraham, or God electing Jacob, or God electing Israel, for God choosing them in the Old Testament, that was fine with me. I just didn't like the thought that God would or would not bring me into His counsel. I remember uh, in our previous church, we had shepherding groups, and in my shepherding group, there was a woman, a wonderful, precious Saint of God, who had studied the scriptures her whole life, but had never been taught anything about election. Kind of like me, only she wasn't hostile toward it. She just had no conception of it. It was kind of ignored. And in our small group study, every week we were reading through, It so happened, the, the epistle to the Ephesians. So election quickly came up. We began talking more and more about God's sovereignty. and She re- told us that she had actually been told to um, stay away from Presbyterians because they were those kind of kooky people who actually believed that God did save some. He did elect some before the foundations of the earth. He elected some to faith for His own glory. But as we carefully walk through the text and saw that this was indeed true, she, like a good Berean, started reading her scriptures. She started studying these doctrines herself. And she had a son who was a doctoral candidate, get this, in Semitic language. So he was an expert at Greek and Hebrew and other languages. So she wrote him and asked him, you know... One of my elders is telling me this thing and can you just tell me what does the word election in the Greek, what does it mean? In the word translated predestination in the Greek, what, what exactly does it mean? Because I don't think it means what he thinks it means. And this man who I had no knowledge of called her and he said, Mom, election means to choose some but not others. And predestination means to destinate them before creation to salvation. And she was amazed that no one had ever taught her this. No one had ever showed her the truth of this beautiful doctrine. So we ask ourselves, why? Why? Why is this? Why doesn't the modern church discuss election? Even Reformed churches who know the Scriptures as it relates to election, why don't we like to talk about it? Especially when it's so central to... God's teaching of salvation. And the short answer, I think, is that we're just embarrassed for God. We think we need to help Him out a little bit with this gospel thing. Because His justice and His love isn't exactly the way we would do it. So it even offends us if we're not careful. And we would choose to ignore it. But the question we all need to grapple with is if this is so central to salvation in the Bible and if it reflects the goodness and love of God, shouldn't we see it as well in that light? I believe we should. Joel Beeky notes seven things that we learn about election from the text this morning in Ephesians. We'll discuss just three of them today. First, election is a reflection of God's love. Look in verse 5 of Ephesians 1. What does it say? In love He predestined us for adoption as sons. In love. So when you consider all of the caricatures of God from those who would oppose this doctrine, well, that makes God unfair. That makes God unkind. It makes Him capricious. It makes Him arbitrary. The Scriptures teach exactly the opposite. Predestination and election are reflections of God's great love for His people. In love, He predestined us. It's a personal thing. He predestined us to what? To adoption. To adoption as His sons. Far from being a cold, hard truth, this is a doctrine of love that brings us into the family of God. It's a personal thing. He chose us in Him. Before the creation of the world. He knew you before He chose you. And in spite of all of the wickedness He saw, He chose you. In spite of all the rebellion, He elected you to life. His choice to save individuals is a very personal thing. It's not stingy. It's not cruel. And far more than just saving us, He adopts us. It's a fatherly love. He predestined us for adoption. That is love indeed. Also he prepared an inheritance for us as a good father, our election secures our inheritance. He loved those whom he saved enough to send his only son to secure that salvation, that sacrifice. Our father's love is vast, beyond all measure and his election, his election of a vast multitude to salvation reflects that love. He didn't leave everyone to perish, as well he justly should have and could have. We also see his love in the effects of this electing choice. In other words, how it affects us and how it affects his people. First of all, we see this in this love reflected in the amazing grace that it is lavished upon us. Verse 7. It's according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. We receive this because we are chosen by God for salvation. Not because we've earned it. You know, all the patriarchs and prophets we read in Hebrews 1 earlier, they desired to know the plan of redemption, but God has made it manifest in Christ. This is part of the lavishing of grace. We see clearly today how God has saved His people. Things that others and even angels longed to look into. This grace has been lavished upon us because of our election. And it's the source of all spiritual blessing. Look at verse 3. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing flows to the elect of God. And to no one else in that way. What more could you ask for for your own children? He's adopted you and then he's showered you with spiritual blessing. What is the ultimate desire of every Christian parent? That your child would know God. Have faith and trust in Christ. He does this for his children. So the Father says that we are blessed in Jesus Christ as sons with every spiritual blessing. What a loving and amazing Father we have. It reminds me too of the paralytic that was lowered down in front of Jesus. You remember this. And everyone's expecting Jesus to say, get up, rise up and walk. And Jesus does that, but almost as an afterthought. If you remember, the first thing he says is, your sins are forgiven. That man was elected to salvation and the best thing that he could ever get in life wasn't to walk again. It was that his sins would be forgiven. That's every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. God loves us because He loves us. He blesses us because He blesses us. Just like He told the Israelites in Deuteronomy. I set my love on you and chose you Because I love you. It's an act of love, this blessing that we participate in. He cares for us. He preserves us. He saves us. He keeps us. He has a love for the whole world as his creatures. This is true. He preserves them and he cares for them as well. Even though they're evil, they're in rebellion, they hate God. He sends rain on them. He provides some measure of happiness on this earth. For all men. But His saving, electing love is a special love. That's for the elect. It's for those who have been chosen in Him before the creation of the world to the praise of His glory. So far from being a capricious and arbitrary and cold doctrine, it's a reflection of God's great love for us. If you have faith in Christ today, This should drive you to great humility. Why has He chosen you? Are you smarter? Are you more clever than your neighbor who rejected Christ? Is that why? Are you better? Do you live a better life? You're more holy. God saw that you might be more holy, so He chose you. Of course not. The Scriptures repulsed at such thoughts. He loves you because He loves you. If you're in Christ, it's an act of grace. And it should inspire gratitude and humility and love for your Savior. Besides seeing God's love in this doctrine, we also see that God is a covenant-keeping God. He keeps His covenant with His Son. He keeps His covenant with His people. Verse 3, the electing one is described as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 17 as well, he's called the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. If your ears are trained to hear covenant language, this is covenant language. It's like saying the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The election of the people of Israel is bound up in the covenant between God and Abraham. And the election of each one of us is bound up in the covenant between God and the Son. The Father and the Son. The covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam. And in him, all the elect as his seed. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1. He's the Lamb of God foreknown before the foundation of the world. The Father and the Son had agreed on something before the foundation of the world, that Christ would be a sacrifice. 1 Peter 2.4 Jesus is the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Revelation 13:8. The elect's names are written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. From time immemorial, the Father. Promised to give his son a people, and the son promised that he would go and save them by dying on a cross, taking the wrath of the father upon himself. This is the covenant of redemption. So, in Ephesians 1, we see the father electing and predestinating, choosing whom that people would be. We see the son saving them, and we see the Holy Spirit sealing them in chapter 1 of Ephesians. It's a divine conspiracy. To save a people from the fire. This is also seen in Jesus' own teaching. John chapter 6. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me. We're talking about the covenant of redemption, aren't we? All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out." For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. He came with a purpose. He came to fulfill His covenant promises with His Father. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Very often you see the doctrine of election and God's sovereignty right next to doctrine of man's responsibility to believe the truth, to embrace their Savior. Of course, this is what we see here as well. The Father has given the Son a people, and they must believe on Him, and those who believe on Him will have eternal life. This is the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham that his children would outnumber the grains of sand on the sea the stars in the heavens the entire trinity ensures that the elect will be saved and that we are sealed with the holy spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance so the predestinating love of our god is a triune love election is the will of our god it displays his love for humanity the love of the godhead for themselves, And we should embrace the truth of election because it's in Scripture. It's revealed in the Bible. It's clearly something that shows the great love and mercy of our Father. Thirdly, we see election unites us to Christ. And this is a beautiful, wonderful truth. It unites us to Christ. Look in chapter 1, all the different things in Christ that are ours because of our election. Verse 3. All those whom He predestined are in Christ. Verse 4, we are chosen in Christ. Verse 5, we have been adopted through Christ. Verse 6, blessed in Christ. Verse 7, our redemption is through His blood, Christ's blood. Verse 9, we know the mystery of God's redemptive work that was set forth in Christ. Verse 12, so that we might be the first to hope in Christ. The old Puritan Richard Sibbs writes, Whatever Christ has or is or has done or suffered is mine by reason of this union with Him by faith, which is the grace of union that knits us to Christ. Because God tells us that we were chosen in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, we know that Christ is our representative head. We who have faith. And everyone in the world has a representative head. You either have the first Adam as your head, or you have the second Adam as your head. Those who would reject the fact that you have been imputed sin because of the sin of the first Adam are often very quick to accept the imputation of righteousness from the second Adam. We either have one or the other. You're either in the first Adam or you're in the second Adam, and we, by grace, We want the second Adam, don't we? We want Jesus Christ to be our head. We are in Christ, if this is so. The source of all our other blessings is Christ. And because of this union with Christ, we know that the elect will certainly come to Him and they will persevere until the end. This is our confidence in witnessing, in evangelism, in missions. All of it is hinged on our union with Christ and God's electing love. It gives us great confidence that whatever He has decided will come to pass, and we can witness and evangelize with great confidence. We can parent our children with confidence, knowing that our loving God has all things in His hands. Whenever you find the Bible talking about God's sovereignty, you'll you'll see man's responsibility to believe as well. And really, it's kind of two sides of the issue. The one side, the election of God, is God's business. So we know the truth is there, and we accept it, and we love it because it's biblical truth. And it reflects the heart of our God to save people. So we embrace it. But to delve into it... to to decipher the mind of God, approaches sin. Our responsibility isn't to figure out every detail about election. Our responsibility is to have faith and repent and trust in Jesus Christ. Because in there, in that election, in that salvation, we have a union with Christ that gives us every spiritual blessing on this earth that we need. This is a Christ-centered gospel. Our election is Christ-centered. Christ came to the earth to save sinners. His saving work, His perfect life, His atoning death, His resurrection from the dead. All of this must be believed and embraced. We must have faith. The election in Christ doesn't preclude faith. It enables faith. Joel Beeky writes, the Christ-centeredness of election implies predestination. That predestination manifests itself in time when sinners trust in Christ for salvation. The election doesn't teach us that we can bypass the hearing of the gospel or placing faith in Christ. You see, that's our responsibility. That's everyone's responsibility to have faith in Christ. Rather, we see that only the elect can see the kingdom of God, as Jesus told Nicodemus. It's only those who have been born again who can see it. So that, as we read in Acts 13, that all those who are ordained to eternal life would believe the gospel. Our eyes are opened. So to be in Christ is more than just having your name written down in the Lamb's book of life. It's not an impersonal fact that is apart from your human experience not at all to be in Christ to be in union with Christ is to identify with Christ in our human experience his death and resurrection we die to ourselves every day his sacrifice on the cross we're called to be a living sacrifice every day to take up our cross daily and follow him to suffer with him if the Bible teaches this doctrine brothers and sisters we should embrace it we should believe it it's important God's sovereignty biblical truth these are the issues at stake before you believe this doctrine really your your God is a very small God your life is very uncertain I'm speaking from experience Your salvation is very uncertain. You never really know if anything is solid. But after you see God's sovereignty in this world and in salvation, everything becomes grand. All of Scripture begins bursting from the pages. As you see the great hope that we have and how securely He has adopted you into His family. I'll conclude with this. Believe in Jesus. John Calvin, who is supposedly to blame for bringing this truth back to Christian life after a thousand years of Catholicism. Actually, it's interesting because in his systematic theology, it's almost the very end before he really addresses election at all. But anyway, Calvin said, how do we know that God has elected us before the creation of the world? How do we know this? By believing in Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. So election is not something to be despised. It's in the Bible. It shows God's great love. It shows his covenant-keeping promises to his people. It shows our union with Christ and ensures that we have all the blessings of Christ. Spiritual blessings. Election is not to be despised. It's a friend of the sinner. Without God's electing love, no one would come to faith. Nobody. This is His amazing grace, that He would not leave us to perish. That He would elect a multitude of humanity for salvation. And our responsibility is to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. All of us. We should not rebel against the God of heaven or question Him as if He were a man. No, we repent and believe the truth. He's God and He calls us. He calls sinners to believe in Jesus. Sinner, run to Jesus today. Beloved, rest in Jesus today. Sinner, place your trust in Christ alone today. You may not have another day. Today might be the last day. May this be the day of your hope, of your salvation. Today, may it be the day you run to Christ. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we are so humbled to think that you love us. You love us not because of anything we've done. You love us simply because you love us. For all of us who have faith in you, we thank you. We praise you, dear God. We know we bring nothing to the table. Nothing of our own worth, our merits. Truly, this is the definition of grace that we would be chosen for your love for no other reason except that you love us. May our human pride not ever, not once, encroach upon the glory of your sovereignty. May we not ever think that so So needy were you that you needed our help. You needed us to to take the last step to salvation or any such nonsense. Lord, you have saved us and you have given us faith and you have brought us to yourself from first to last. Our salvation is from God. And we give you glory and honor and praise. We pray that you would use this truth to refine us To show us our wickedness and make us a humble and grateful people. You would work holiness in our hearts. That we would pursue you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that we would love you more. Lord, you have loved us with such a great love. You have purchased us with such a great price. Let us love you well. In Jesus' name.